You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. Dr. Chris Tilling is head of research and senior lecturer in New Testament studies at St. Melitus College in London, England. Dr. Tilling, with Michael Byrd, co-authored How God Became Jesus, published by Zondervan in 2014. Dr. Tilling's first book, the critically acclaimed Paul's Divine Christology, appeared in 2012 and was republished by Erdman's in 2015 with multiple endorsements and a new foreword. He is currently co-editing the T&T Clark Companion to Christology, as well as working on a commentary on 2 Corinthians for the new International Commentary on the New Testament, published as well by Erdman's. Dr. Tilling has published numerous articles on topics relating to the Apostle Paul, Christology, Justification, the Historical Jesus, Karl Barth, and more. He is one of the co-hosts of the popular podcast, On Script. I highly recommend the On Script podcast, which provides world-class conversations on scripture and theology. It is an excellent source for wide-ranging, serious discussions about issues relating to the Christian faith, all done professionally and scholarly, but also in a conversational and relaxed way as well. I am personally grateful for Dr. Tilling's invitation for me to appear on the OnScript podcast on March 6, 2022, to discuss my book, Grace Saves All. That was a great opportunity for me, and I'm thrilled to have him now on my podcast and to, in some way, get to return the favor. Of particular interest to us today is a book Dr. Tilling edited and contributed to entitled Beyond Old and New Perspectives on Paul, published by the Cascade Imprint of Whitfenstock in 2014. In Beyond Old and New Perspectives on Paul, Dr. Tilling gives us a fascinating book which gives readers the experience of attending a scholarly conference centered on the work of the internationally recognized Dr. Douglas Campbell of Duke Divinity School, who I regard as the most important scholar on Paul since Karl Barth. As a side note, Dr. Douglas Campbell appeared on episode 81 of the Grace Saves All podcast, and I recommend you consult that interview in connection with this one. All of this background puts Dr. Tilling in an excellent position to be able to assess the current state of the scholarly debate surrounding how we should best understand the full implications of Paul's understanding of the gospel, how it was that the Apostle Paul understood the good news about Jesus Christ. Welcome, Dr. Chris Tilling, to the Grace Saves All podcast. David, thank you very much for the invitation, and it's a pleasure to be here. Sort of quid pro quo going on here, right? Right. (laughs) Having you on on script and um, and then here, and I should say as well to those who are listening, apologies if I'm a slightly slurry. I'm I'm currently suffering with COVID, getting a little bit more co- coherent now. Thankfully, I'm I'm not lying in bed all of the time. But we've got a be- a beta. Was it the beta six of the Omicron or beta five of the Omicron? I, can't, I don't know anymore. But it's a little bit more aggressive. There's slightly more hospitalizations, and I think a number of us are getting beaten up a bit by it um here we are i'm i'm positive maybe your first covid positive guest <laughs> well it, it makes the zoom uh, kind of conversation seem uh, 
very safe. I'm glad we're not doing this one face to face. Yeah, that's well, true. No, and I was just going to say, you said uh, about um, you consider Douglas Campbell to be the most important Pauline scholar since Karl Barth or write, writer on. I mean, I, I think Barth wasn't, you know, he, he he wrote an awful lot, but um, I have to concur. I think Campbell is um, the most important Pauline scholar out there, whatever people think about him. His uh, brilliance outshines everyone else's and... Um, um, so it's going to be fun to talk about his work today. Well, he has certainly uh, changed the conversation. I really appreciate that. And I appreciate the work that you've done in helping us to be able to get a handle on Dr. Campbell's scholarship. But I'd like to just, I've, I've talked about all of your scholarly accomplishments, which are tremendous. Um, but I'd like just to begin with, with a more simple story about how you came to faith. Well, it's it's not really a an uplifting story in many ways. I I just I went to a local church. wasn't raised in a Christian family or a church going family, but I I fancied some of the girls in the local church. So you know I went along. Um, one of them invited me to come along, and I remember the fight, internal fight. You know why would I want to go along to this nonsense? But uh, you know I ended up getting involved, and uh, eventually, through twists and turns, had an encounter with um, the Holy Spirit, with the risen Lord, and I was forever changed thereafter. But uh, it's not a straightforward story. I um, I was converted in a very, for the UK, <laughs> okay, for the UK, I should add, a mm-hmm. very conservative evangelical background. Um, you know, it's, dinosaurs are in Job, creationism, or you're, you're, you know, are you really a Christian? That kind of background, which is fine. You know, I, I'm very grateful from, for, for what that gave me, a love of scripture, the centrality of of um, the Bible in in things uh, relating to creed and liturgy, uh, but I've you know I've grown a little bit and I'm not exactly where I was, uh, but um, that's probably enough of a, a quick story of, of how I came to face. So say it's not like I was doing drugs and shooting people up and then had an encounter and then everything was rosy. And it's not like that at all. Well, it does uh, seem to be quite a journey. For me, that you would go from that beginning to what seems to me right in the middle of the highest levels of academic discourse and discussion on the Apostle Paul and becoming an expert in the Greek language and the you know the ancient world and being right in the middle of this discussion. I mean, that's from my point of view, that's quite a journey. Well, yeah, I suppose if you put it like that, <laughs> uh, the I mean, I was encouraged by my pastor at the time not to go to university to study theology because I'd lose my faith, but to work in McDonald's so that I'd stay humble. Um, and he meant well. It was foolish of him to, to say that, but I'm glad I didn't um, listen to him. God had other plans. And going to university, I was simply encouraged by some amazing people around me. There was Trevor Hart who was uh, the systematic theologian there, who's written on uh, Karl Barth, lovely guy. Perhaps most importantly for me was Richard Borkham, um, whose learning is without peer in my field. Uh, he encouraged me in, to think more uh, seriously about Jesus Christ. As you move towards more scholarly, a more scholarly consideration of your faith, I know that the world of scholarship is pretty divided up. You have to choose kind of which area you wanted to focus upon. 
And you came to be a scholar on the Apostle Paul. And mm. how did that happen? Well, I wanted to do something on early Christology, particularly tackling some of the arguments presented by Jimmy Dunn, whose basic claim was that the divine Christology that would be recognizable in the early creeds developed later. Uh, maybe John, you know, you can say in John, but but not early with Paul, Paul's letters being the earliest layer of the New Testament. And I... Um, and I wanted to do some work on the historical Jesus and the development of that through to Paul, but it's too much for a PhD. I mean, that's like life work. Uh, so I had to focus, and it became clear to me after a lot of wrestling that I had something original to say about the Apostle Paul. And with PhD work, that's it. You know, you, you've got to have something. You've got to contribute to scholarly discourse. You've got to be able to make an advance in knowledge in some way, shape, or form. And it was on the Apostle Paul. And I'm glad I did. It felt like a gift. And I still stand by broadly what I what I argued in, in the book as well. Well, it seems to me that in modern Christianity, there is really a profound debate on the meaning of justification. How are we saved? How are we made right with God? And that becomes a burning question. I mean, in general, what I've seen is that people, yeah, they're they're interested in the words of Jesus and they think, yeah, I should know about loving my neighbor and those types of things. But then they say, but how, how can I know that I'm saved? How, how can I, how can I be saved? And, and that's maybe part of, part of that is because I'm in the Southern part of the United States and it's quite an evangelical environment. And that topic of sal Christianity is very associated with the idea of salvation and just in the area that, that I'm in. And when people get interested in how am I saved? They turn to Paul and they try to read his letters and they try to understand, try to ferret all of that out and understand what basically is the formula for my salvation. What's interesting to me is that once you get into Pauline studies, you find out pretty quickly that there's something called the old perspective on Paul. And then you find out there's something called the new perspective on Paul. And you realize that, oh, well, this is a, this is a big conversation that's even going on in the scholarly world, in your book that you did, has that in the title. So I wonder if you could just talk about Pauline studies, the old perspective and the new perspective, and then beyond the new perspective. Oh, goodness. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, the old perspective on Paul emerges in the, the Reformation and the period of the Reformation. It's a certain way of reading Paul that understands important words like faith, works and the, the the verb to justify or thikaio, um often translated as to justify and and a, a few others um, but but they're, they're central for sure it's in other words a reading scheme that casts these words in a particular way so that when you read paul's letters and you come across these words you activate that entire scheme unknowingly and it's kind of dominant in in our Imagination in the UK and the US, I think it's it's dominant in ecclesial circles and outside of the church as well. When one asks, you know, what does Paul mean by the gospel, or what do we mean by the gospel, which is often then synonymous, it'll boil down to an old perspective understanding of that vocabulary. Now, by old perspective, it's old because it it has a long heritage associated with the Reformation. It's not old because Along came the new perspective and replaced it. It's not like an old iPod and a new iPod or whatever, new iPad, old iPad. Um, 
there were a number of um, beautiful strengths to the old perspective reading of Paul um, that we could discuss. The immediacy of 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 faith, um, of relationship with Jesus Christ, that would be you know the high moments, the the beautiful moments, the sense of of release uh, that is you know palpable in the revivalists as they embodied a lot of this. Um, you know that that joyful sense of of being right with God, and but when you start to press the reading, it starts to get a little bit problematic. And and really, the reading is based on because it emerges in the period of the Reformation and in the following that in the Enlightenment period, it becomes tabulated right through to the modern period. It's it it emerges in a dance with our own modern culture with its individualistic and contractual axioms and let me, let me explain that so you've got we tend to live in a hyper individualistic culture by which i mean um, we tend to understand ourselves primarily with reference to who we are inside while rather than uh, with reference to the group in which we now exist now of course with the emergence of toxic identity politics that you know that's changing but but still uh individualism it's like uh, the lenses behind our eyes. Um, we, we, we see through them without even acknowledging them. So the Lord's Prayer, you know, forgive us our sins as we forgive. I mean, that is it's really quite unintelligible to us. Forgive us our sins as we forgive. You know, I, I, I'll take that to be about me forgiving somebody or something all of the time. It's very difficult for me to understand that as in a plural there. Um, so individualism is a part of who we are. It's the way we read scripture. It doesn't mean it's bad in every sense of the word. Sometimes it can be, but not always. It just It's going to shape what we do when we read scripture. And it's shaped how we read Paul, unquestionably, uh, for better or for worse. And the same with contracts. You know, you've got the great social contract, Adam Smith, and you know, political and economic movements that emerged in the Enlightenment period that that structured our relationships according to a contractual standard. Do X, then you get Y. There are, you know, leftovers from the older way of seeing covenantal relationships, and we still see that in marriage. So the marriage covenant, you know, it's an unconditional allegiance to somebody, but therefore requires X, Y, and Z because of that unconditional uh, allegiance. Unfortunately, we've read Paul in light of contract, and we've activated the word faith very often as the, as, as the word that gets us into a contractual relationship with God. You know, we're, we're all screwed, is, is the basic premise. We're all screwed because we're all filth. And if we want the good stuff, well, that's God has made available. God has made potential possible through the death of his son. And there's an emphasis on the death of Jesus rather than the resurrection in in the old perspective. That's very broad brushstroke there. Uh, But if we want to access that, actualize it, we do it by faith, by faith alone, in Christ alone. You know, that that kind of thing. But what we're often unwittingly doing there is activating both individualism. So it's something I believe, I do, not somebody else for me. And contractualism. It means I enter a contract with God. Um, So that's not a covenantal relationship, it's a contractual one. Now, both of these factors, contract and individualism, screw up our reading of Paul so badly that it's taken us a lot of time to untangle what is a, you know, really intense reading of Paul's letters that began in the Reformation, a liberative one, from the crap that we've thrown into it. 
before we move to the new perspective, one of the things that I think is so problematic about the old perspective is, is that it tends to cast Judaism as a contractual kind of legalistic religion in, in a very negative kind of light. And that can lead to anti-Semitism. Oh, yeah, it, it, it did. I mean, this is, is just going to say that um, the new perspective was an attempt to sort of rectify the problems of the old perspective, but particularly the one you've just mentioned. The old perspective, particularly it's reading in Romans chapter 2 and, and passages in Galatians, systematically othered the Jew in this reading. The Jew became the paradigmatic mercantile legalist. The Jew, you look at the Jew, that's the way you don't do religion. That's religion done wrong. Instead, you need to believe by faith and receive as gift. And so we're not legalists and we're in the right. Protestant rhetorics against Roman Catholics gets folded up into all of this as, as well, of course. Now, the new perspective emerged, well, slowly through the, the 20th century. I mean, there were some forerunners, W.D. Davies, Christa Stendhal's essay, but really, it was E.P. Sanders and his book, Paul and Palestinian Judaism, in 1977. That was absolutely crucial. In it, he argued that, look, the presentation of Judaism as legalistic, you know, as an illegalistic relationship with God, is just not true, historically speaking. Mm-hmm. Let's have a look at their the pattern of their relationship with God, the pattern of their religion, and see what we find. And instead of legalism he found what he called covenantal nomism. That is, Israel is in a covenant with God um, and therefore is obliged to be faithful to God by by obedience to the Torah, the nomos, the the, the law. And in the law, there's the means of of forgiveness. Um, There's the sacrificial system and so on. The, the, The idea that you had to be legalistically perfect in order to be in a right relationship with God and them Jews, aren't they crazy for thinking that? But now we Christians know better because because we believe in justification by faith alone. He says, look, it's it's a foil. It's a false premise. And so the new perspective on Paul doesn't exist. It's a new perspective on Second Temple Judaism. That's the Judaism contemporary to Paul. And uh, the basic the basic point then is, okay, if, Paul, if we've misunderstood that which Paul is battling against, then we've got to put Paul back together again. And the new perspective on Paul is, well, there's a number of them. There's new perspectives. All are trying to piece Paul back together again. And there's a few of them out there. You know, you've got uh, your Tom Wrights and your Jimmy Dunns and people like that trying to figure out what on earth Paul must mean if we got this wrong about the Jew. And they fold into all of this, the individualism and the contractualism at their highest moments anyway, as well. Well, in your book, you talk about something beyond old and new perspectives in this and this is where we get into the scholarship of uh, Dr. Douglas Campbell. Yeah. So could you tell us a little bit about this? Yeah. So I'm sure anyone who's read a little bit on the Apostle Paul will be aware of the debate between old and new perspectives, between people like John Piper and Tom Wright in popular level stuff anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so there's been a debate rumbling on for a while and, and some of us, have been a little bit perplexed um, by it all uh, because I think we were struggling to find any willpower to plant our flag firmly on either. Uh, We could see that there were weaknesses with the old perspective, for sure. It's um, account of the Jew, the inherent individualism, etc. The problematic reading of texts, you know, this... 
all of this emerges from reading Paul, right? And mm-hmm. all of them are true to the extent that they can accurately account for what Paul wrote. And there were some problems there for the old perspective, unquestionably. You know, who, who's the who's the person in Romans 2 who's, who's righteous because they do the works of the law? Um, you know, there's all kinds of issues going on. Um, but uh, but the new perspective too um, was a was a bold and and um, important attempt to understand Paul's letters again. Um, but many of us were just profoundly left cold by the reading, unconvinced and and cold. Not that we were waiting for another view to come along, but I I can only speak for myself now is having done so much work on Christology in the New Testament, having drank deeply from the worlds of Karl Barth and his theology, I wasn't really interested in a reading of Paul that wouldn't centralise Jesus Christ. You know, a reading of Paul that was going to succeed for me would have to have Jesus front, centre, middle, last, end. Not as a chapter in a wider story, Mm-hmm. as in some new perspective readings not not as not as the the content of the good news but actually nothing to do with the bad news as in the old perspective but the center of everything and because after all Jesus is the center of everything for Paul we want to know about the center of Paul it's Jesus Christ and his theology is Jesus Christ um so along comes um Douglas Campbell more of an apocalyptic approach to reading Paul and that simply means it's relating the way Paul uses the word apocalypti as the revelation, the unveiling of Jesus Christ, this Galatians chapter 1 and so on. In other words, it was a reading that was going to foreground that the importance of Jesus Christ theologically, hermeneutically, exegetically in, in reconstructing what Paul is all about. This was, a, this was a third way beyond the new and old perspectives. It faced a number of problems, that particular reading. Well, mainly it faced the problem of Romans 1 to 4. Um, and so you had a brilliant scholar, J. Lou Martin, whose, whose commentary on Galatians, is, it's, a, it's a very important commentary on, on Galatians. It's right up there almost with, with um, Bart's Romans commentary. But we want to read the whole of Pauline, uh, the Pauline corpus. But what do you do with Romans 1 to 4? Where the old perspective seems to be obvious. Not the new so much, the old perspective. So Douglas Campbell's book, The Deliverance of God, was an an attempt with incredible learning, the likes of which I've never seen and have not ever seen since, to reread Romans in light of faithfulness to the centrality of Jesus Christ throughout. And it involved a very controversial rereading of Romans 1 to 4 um, that I think is utterly compelling and, and actually blatantly obvious when you read the text um but it took me it's taken me about eight years to come round to to see that that with as much clarity as i I now have i struggled for the first few years i reread multiple times the deliverance of god Uh, i struggled to understand how he was holding everything together what what the terms meant but eventually and slowly things started to clarify i had a lot to unlearn in order to relearn when it came to reading paul's letters but the spoiler is this and if this is you know daunting for any of your listeners look a good reading of paul is one which is going to lead you to a greater appreciation of the unconditional love of god revealed in jesus christ and by the holy spirit that's about it a good reading of paul is going to lead you to that place 
So, you know, don't, don't panic, I'd say to any of your readers. If you're reading Paul's letters and you're starting to think, hang on, the love of God, unconditional, I don't think so. Well, then slow down. You might have missed it somewhere. A good reading of Paul everywhere is going to lead you to a greater appreciation of the unconditional love of God revealed in Jesus Christ and by the Holy Spirit. And Douglas Campbell helped me to see that with more clarity than any, anyone ever before. Well, one of the things that's interesting to me about people like yourself that are that are doing scholarship at a high level is that, you know, there you are going along looking at scholarly work and then you see something from your perspective that seems new and fresh and interesting and insightful and you wouldn't have been able to really see that if you hadn't really learned the lay of the land so Mm. here you are already on a higher scholarly plane than most of us will ever get and then but from that perspective you're able to be blown away by this level of scholarship that you're seeing in in Dr. Campbell and, and how it helps us to work. It's really hard, from my perspective, not to get tripped up in the first four chapters of Romans. You you sort of form yeah. you sort of form an idea about what Romans is about, and then you carry that with you. I think yeah. wrongly, it's like you get a bad pair of glasses on in the first four chapters of Romans, and then that makes you unable to read. I think the rest of it and to really see the beauty of what Paul is trying to communicate there. I think that's really insightful, David. Absolutely. Um, I think that's precisely what has happened to, um, to our reading of, of Romans. And, and that's exactly what Douglas Campbell is trying to solve and to unravel. Okay. Well, having said that, where do you see Paul studies or the studies on the apostle Paul headed in the future? It's difficult to predict. Um, I I find myself often a little bit disappointed with the scholarly world because it's it's very much more driven by politics and allegiances and um, hidden agendas than I would have thought would be possible. I I had assumed instead that we have um, you know an objectivity and and careful cross-analysis of different perspectives and so fair public debate, even if we're going to reject the word objective. But it just, it doesn't work like that. And so the reception of Douglas Campbell's work has been absolutely laughable. And I'm, um, and that's why, you know, one of the reasons why anyway, that we look to organize the conference on Beyond Old and New Perspectives on Paul, on Douglas's work and to publish the book, because the scholarly literature was um, disappointing, to say the least, when it came to a useful and accurate a, a critical reflection on Douglas's work. The image that I've often <clears throat> used with people is to say, when you're trying to understand the Christian world when it comes to scholarship and to seminaries and ideas, that what you're really looking at are various silos, and the, so yes. the churches have their traditions and their understandings, and the people that are best at taking those in and teaching them, the others then get graduated up the silo. And so it's a self-reinforcing kind of thing. And then institutions and colleges then have agendas, they have institutions, they have donors. And so colleges, ministers, churches, all are kind of caught up in then defending a certain way of looking at things. So... The world of scholarship is 
very much divided and very contentious in ways that I think I was surprised to discover when I got into it. And even being, you know, even being a minister, I discovered that I found myself oftentimes hedging what I really wanted to say to the congregation because well, I had a mortgage to pay and I didn't want to upset this part of the yeah, this part right. of the congregation. And I, I think when I look back on my ministry, sometimes I ask myself, well, what, what would I have said if I wasn't afraid? But what you, you get so involved in trying to keep an organ to hold a group together that sometimes, you know, you fail to say what you really want to say. And that can happen in the world of scholarship as well. Yeah. And what I thought was so interesting about your book was it was like getting to go to a conference. And if you've ever, you know, for those who haven't gone to an ac academic conference, what's so amazing is you see these very learned people taking very different positions from mm. each other. I mean, it would almost seem that the positions can be so different, it would almost seem to almost be an insult. But these academics all take it in stride. <laughs> and yeah. in the book, you have people that are quite critical of Douglas yes. Campbell's position. But then they also have nice discourse about it. Dr. Campbell then responds. And you kind of get an idea about what scholarly discourse and debate is about and like. And I thought your book accomplished that really, really well. well thank you. That's that's really encouraging to hear. I mean, that was the attempt, really. It was it was not about being an echo chamber. And um, yeah, it certainly wasn't all. Yeah. It certainly wasn't all people just agreeing with it with each other. It wasn't a hagiography, so no. to speak, of of, um, of Dr. Campbell. And I just thought so. I thought it was. But what I what I thought about it is that it shows a lot of respect for Dr. Campbell that these other scholars who disagreed with him were willing to enter into a serious dialogue with him and allow him to respond to them and to have discourse. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it, and by people who'd really read his book, you know, this was key. I, I I'm not going to name names, but there were certain reviews written and published that were clearly written by people who had not read all of the deliverance of God. But as to your question of the future of Pauline scholarship and so on, it's going to be plural. There's going to be lots of different things happening in the future. There isn't going to be one camp going forward in the same way, perhaps, that paradigms singular dominated in the past. There's lots of interesting things going on, and, I, and I'm sympathetic to some of them deeply. Uh, particularly um, Paul within Judaism, uh, and I won't get into it all, all now, uh, socio-scientific readings, and so on. There's all lots lots on the table that I think sheds light on Paul's letters. But ultimately, and I'll say it again, <laughs> I think a good reading of Paul is one which will lead us to a greater appreciation of the unconditional love of God revealed in Jesus Christ and by the Holy Spirit. In other words, there's a Christological, Trinitarian dynamic to a good reading of Paul that will dominate my reading going forward. And I think it should also be one that informs the church's reading as well going forward, if it wants to be faithful to its creeds and the gospel. Well, one of the things that happened to me in my spiritual journey is that Christ just became completely central. So everything is Christ, so that everything that happens, I started even reading in Colossians and taking seriously that all of creation comes through Christ. It's all through him and to him and for him. And that began to really changed the way I was I was thinking about things and just the enormity of the deliverance that was achieved in Christ 
became so overwhelming. It became hard for me to see how that deliverance would not finally be successful in defeating every principality and power which might try to stand against it. Once I got there, it was just hard to see how anything could possibly defeat the will of Jesus for any single person and how the will of Jesus was that he was the one that seeks and saves the lost. And so, you know, that got me into, that got me into some, I'll just say some pretty deep theological waters for myself. Some people call this universalism. I like to, I think of it, universalism to me sort of sounds like pluralism, Mm -hmm. but to me, this was a way, this was a Christian universalism. In other words, that Christ, his, he is universal, that, that he is the universe. So Christian universalism is an attempt for me just to cast everything in the light of Christ and his, who he is and what his purposes are. Anyway, and so when I ran across Douglas Campbell in his work, I found somebody who was seeing Paul and the implications of Paul's theology in that kind of way. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think that's, again, very insightful. Um, that's, that's effectively what, what Douglas Campbell has done. But it's an interesting thought experiment for you, because if you will permit me to go back to Colossians, um, because this is what I'm talking about when it comes to schemes and paradigms and old perspective and new perspective and so on. But that beautiful passage in Colossians chapter one, where you have those alls, you know, the firstborn of, of all creation, all things in heaven and earth, and in him all things hold together. Uh, finally, of course, with all the fullness of God, pleased to dwell in him, pleased to reconcile to himself all, all things, things. All things. Now, this is the interesting thing, because that is a beautiful theological scheme. But if you are in a particular reading tradition that tends to see contracts everywhere, that will tend to be nullified immediately by what follows when Paul goes on and, uh, hang on, let's see if I can find it here. It's just, and you were once estranged and hostile in your mind, doing evil things, but he's now reconciled you. So it's personalizing it then goes on to say, if you continue securely established and steadfast in the faith. And what that does, the if activates contractual schemes. And of course, the faith then language used there dovetails with that. And so all of a sudden, that beautiful scheme of universal salvation becomes something potential in in that particular reading scheme um, that has to be activated by individuals who believe and who persist in faith, or it won't apply to them. It's incredible, isn't it, how powerful reading schemes are, because then all of those alls tend to get deleted from the what we've ju- what you've what you've just said. They, they get deleted. They, they don't they don't mean that anymore because of the weight that we play on single words like if, because of underriding reading strategies relating to contracts that dominate our imagination and our readings of Paul. Well, one of the things that helped me in thinking about the New Testament and looking at the original languages is that oftentimes the verb tenses in the original Greek are much more active, that these are things that are, that are actively happening and in, in, you know, in process. And so as we are 
as we are believing this, as we are receiving this, we are we are taking up that life, which is truly life. And we get to live in that eternal life right now, provided that we continue to live in it. If in the sense that if we stop believing and stop having faith, then we stop experiencing it. Stop. It's not that it's not there. It's just that we're not living in it or experiencing it anymore. And that's a problem because people want to think that, oh, Christianity means I believe these certain things. I check the box and then I'm done. Mm -hmm. So I'm saved. Not thinking of it as a as a progressive, ongoing experience in which we are continually enriched as we continually believe and have faith. And faith, when I learned that that word faith really means sort of trust. And so that I'm just trusting in this and I'm living trusting in this as I live in a trusting relationship with this, I continue to receive the life that comes from it. Yeah, absolutely. If clauses don't don't necessarily imply contractual clauses, that's the that's the thing. An if clause could be simply a consequence clause. Therefore, um, therefore, yeah, and uh, it, it, so it. There's lots of ways of of explaining this, but the point is, certain readings of Paul can be very difficult to shake off, and so the old perspective brought a lot of good stuff. Don't get me wrong; I, I frankly prefer the old perspective reading, at least adjusted in a certain couple of ways, to the new perspective. But but these are not easy to shake off. Reading Paul is like looking into a mirror. We, we often tend to simply see what we expect to find. And, and reading Paul is about making sure that we can hear him as a weirdo. And I mean that in the respectful way. You know, We need to see Paul isn't one of us. He's other. He's distinct. If we're reading him and he doesn't surprise us, something's probably gone wrong. Well, I want to talk a little bit about the possibility of somebody saying, you know what, I could be a Christian if I could believe that God was in this for the final well-being of all. You know, but I've been told that that's in fact not what God, that's not what God is about. And so I guess I can't be a Christian. And so what I tell people is, well, hold on. No, you can believe that God is in this for the final well-being of everybody. There's a way that you can read the Apostle Paul, I think legitimately. There's a way that you can look at the early church fathers who certainly saw this uh, possible way of being Christian. Now, the Western Christian tradition has discarded that as an option for the most part in its, in its history, starting in the Middle Ages. But now we're at a time when we can go back, we can look at the early centuries of the church, we can look at Paul again, kind of with fresh eyes through modern scholarship. And so now we're at this good point where we can say, okay, hold on, let's let's go back and let's take a look at the whole of the history of the Christian tradition, the best of modern scholarship that we have right now. And then I want to say to people, if this is a way that you can be Christian by believing that God is in this for the well-being and the final successfully will finally reconcile all back to himself, it's got an ancient tradition in the church. It's certainly defensible from a scholarly point, point of view. Yes, this is a way that you can be a Christian. People are often surprised when I say that with such confidence. Um, but I feel like I don't think somebody like you would think that that was an outrageous concept. You'd say, well, yeah, yeah, this is a possible way. You've got Douglas Campbell you can look to. You've got a lot of good scholarship. You've got ancient church fathers. Yes, mm-hmm. come and be. You, you can be a Christian this kind of way. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever one thinks of uh, the university's position, it's. Um... You know, there are some shocks 
when becoming an academic. And, and as I mentioned earlier on, coming from a more conservative background, there were some things that were just very difficult to accept were legitimate readings and legitimate possibilities. And um, universalism and a universal reading, particularly of Paul, uh, was one of them. I was confronted by this. I, I, was, I wrote most of my, my doctorate while living near Tübingen in Germany. And in Germany at the time, they had um, the brilliant New Testament scholar, um, Hans-Joachim Eckstein. And one of his doctoral students, I think he was writing his um, second doctorate, um, which I'll, I'll get into that now, but his, his book was Paulus and die Versöhnung alle, um, Paul and the Reconciliation of All. It hasn't been translated into English, but I, I read the book because, you know, it was one, one of the books written by someone who lived in Tübingen and we'd meet up and we'd go out for coffees and he'd be in a lot of the meetings I was involved with. So I was, I was keen to get to know his opinion. And this was goodness. This was back in 2005 or so the book was published. So I had to re, I had to reconsider. Crikey, I thought, this is actually a legitimate possibility for reading Paul. And nobody in my tradition, had prepared me for this. But, you know, I, it's a very tightly argued book. I didn't agree with it in, entirely, but there's no question that it's a legitimate reading of Paul. And this is certainly something I would say to my students coming in, uh, to to um, St. Melitus. As I said, we've got to allow Paul's words to have an impact on us, to be felt. And we have so neutralised his language by thinking that we know what his words mean that we can't hear him anymore. And one of those words is all. And the number of times Paul speaks about all, whether it's Romans 5.18, Romans 11.32, Colossians chapter 1, you know, all over the place. We've got to flirt with Paul's alls. Because if we don't, we're not reading his letters. All we've done is neutralise them. And then we're seeing ourselves in the mirror when we're reading them. Well, one of the scholars who helped me the most is Robin Perry. Such a beautiful soul, kind of, for me, kind of a distillation of everything that I love about England, just his personality, <laughs> his way of his, how gentle and thoughtful and thorough and patient he is, and the way that he speaks and his theology and his journey I've just found utterly fascinating and, and captivating. And so, in, in a way, I kind of associate this gentle reading and hopeful reading with some great English. William Barclay uh, mm. was, a, was, a, was a scholar who ended up reading this way. You know, Robin Perry, uh, George MacDonald, mm. um, you know, those voices— have become so, so clear and important to me that I almost associate all of this with a gentle English accent. You know, it's Robin, I guess that's why Robin Perry is so, it just, the, his, his presentation, his demeanor, everything about him carries the gentleness and the thoughtfulness of all of this for me. I don't know, maybe, you know, maybe I'm an, maybe I'm jealous of the English accent. Isn't it odd? That why people would think that English sounds smarter? It must be something to do with movies or something. I can assure you, we're not. <laughs> but but the but the truth the truth is, 
Robin is a great guy. You know, he really embodies something of the gentleness of the gospel. There's no two ways about that. His friendship um, is um, is special to me too. He's. Uh, I remember reading his um, his book without knowing it was him at the time, the Evangelical Universalist, many years ago, and um, and being struck by many of the arguments that were being put forward by English um, interlocutors. I recognised some friends that were being used in the book without being named who were also English. So there's a little bit of an in-house thing going on, I think. But yeah, you're absolutely right that uh, that Robin is um, is a great example of the gentleness of the love of God. Now on the on the in the on the American scene, for me it was Thomas Talbot who has that same type of spirit. Very thoughtful, very very careful thinker a very, very gentle person raised in an evangelical tradition, but then he gets a degree and goes to seminary at Fuller, then he gets a degree in philosophy. And he's trying to understand how he can reconcile the love of God that he first discovered through his parents, that that can somehow be expressed in the Christian faith. And of course, he runs into George the, the writings of George MacDonald, and that opens up yeah, some things yeah. for him. But then that's, you know, that's a connection. And I think you're somewhat feel familiar with Talbot's work. Yes, yes. I remember reading his his book. Um, um, it was uh, f- similarly for, for, for Robin, I think, um, for me, it was, um, I think, reading criticisms of, of Talbot's work were very important. Not, not um, so much himself, because he seems to present a very plausible argument, and you think, oh, crikey, there might be something to this, and then you turn to a critic, and you think, they're going to tear him to pieces, aren't they? And they don't. That was that was very um, instructive for me. Uh, as you say, he's a careful um, scholar who argues with um, with elegance, and fa- you know, famously, it was his syllogism, or what was it, three options of I won't get into the details now. My brain is stuck. Well, the, ines- well, the inescapable now. love of God it really contains a, a very tightly woven philosophical, logical argument that I had not seen done at that level before. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And and I think you'll find um, with Robin, it was preparing a book of um, essays in response to Thomas Talbot, to co-edited together with Ian Howard Marshall and others, that started to push Robin in the direction of universalism because of the responses to Thomas Talbot that didn't mm-hmm. work. So then in the midst of all of this gentle discussion, bursts upon the scene David Bentley Hart. <laughs> and for me, David Bentley Hart was such a shock in his absolute derision of the eternal torment doctrine and how that there was no way that that could ever be associated with with the God revealed in Jesus Christ and his, his delight, obvious delight almost in just deconstructing the Western Christian theological tradition with its insistence of the doctrine of eternal torment and in its various ways that it has twisted itself to make that seem that a good God could eternally torment his own children in a creation he's totally responsible for. So, I mean, to me, David Bentley Hart just landed landed like a shockwave in the midst of this whole discussion. And I, what was that like for you on the English scene or in the scholar or just in the scholarly uh, world? 
Yeah, um, it's re- I, really difficult for me to judge how it fell on the wider scene. I mean, I have I have friends who were involved in some of the debates, and I'd, I'd say that there was a greater polarization that emerged, some more defensively rejecting David Bentley Hart's arguments without really engaging them. And, you know, Hart's rhetoric is um, is very difficult for some to to deal with and um, it made it easier to dismiss um, on that basis if uh, if you weren't so concerned about arguments but, but you know how it made you feel um, the dismissal of Calvin and others just led others to think oh he, he can't be a very close reader of texts so so there was some there was a polarization about others however and I'm starting to see this with some younger students were profoundly impressed by his rhetoric I don't think dbh's strengths are more on the ecumenical side of things he's someone that you throw in there to to cause an explosion and shed light mm-hmm. and um uh rather than as someone who is there to to bring yeah, a spirit of generosity <laughs> <laughs> and healing but but he's but he's an incredibly brilliant learned scholar whose work i'm very grateful for i'm and some of the reviews, I mean, it's in a similar way to Douglas Campbell, some of the reviews of his work have been laughable. Well, I've told people that I think that we are in a time that is every bit as dynamic as the Protestant Reformation. If you ever wondered what it must have been like to live through the Protestant Reformation, well, we're going with the, the Protestant Reformation in the printing press compared to what we're going through right now with the Internet and just the amount of New Testament scholarship that there is out there and the amount of communication and podcast and different ways that people have to express themselves that, that this time that we are in, I think is an extraordinarily exciting. I, like I went, when I was in seminary, you know, I can remember in order to access a lot of these things, I had to have a, a, a card, a special card to give me access to the, to the seminary library at the university. Well, now all of these ideas all you know, all, a lot of this scholarship is just now available to the general public, and yeah. people are making up their minds about it, and they're either getting upset about it or they're deciding that they agree with it. So it's, uh, I would say, it would be a very exciting time for you to be a professor or a teacher in a in a collegiate setting where students are getting exposed to just how dynamic a situation that we're in right now. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, it can feel overwhelming as well. I mean, the flip side of that is that some of the stable axioms and securities of the past have been lost. And I think this has led many into a deconstruction position, you know, where the goal is deconstruction. And, you know, we can prove ourselves to be deconstruction Christians if we throw in the F-bomb more times than other people. And and this is the trendy thing to be. This is where I think people like Karl Barth and Douglas Campbell and others have have um, an awful lot to say because we're not left on our own. We're not left cast on a on a stormy sea without any direction. Jesus Christ is our Lord. You, you know, we're we're called to be followers of Jesus Christ. He is our plumb line. He is our rule and guide through all of the confusing debates. And I think ultimately, this is going to be something that we're going to have to cling on to ecumenically as well. You know, the, the fact is, I disagree profoundly with a to- uh, John Piper and his reading of Paul, or even um, w- with some other names who I respect enormously when it comes to their reading of, of Paul's letters. But they're they're followers of Jesus. 
as well. You know, we, we do have things in common. And, and I think it's absolutely crucial to to bear this in mind in a time of great confusion and um, we, we, in a space that is contested uh, as we are today. Jesus Christ is our plumb line. He is the one word of God. Um, and hopefully that will help navigate us through some of the confusion. We're not well, that, left on our own resources. That's where I see your scholarship really at work, helping us to see the centrality of Christ in a reading in the reading of Paul, and then also just providing a context and formats, whether it's through your book, the you know, which is a your book was a conference format in a book, and then you know your on script podcast is a podcast format of this same thing, people getting together, expressing different views having genial scholarly conversations with each other and approaching kind of learning together as sort of a community experience that, that we can do collegially. We can have yes. strongly held positions and we can hold some openness to keep other points of view in mind, still have our own position, but we can, we don't have to break apart into a million pieces in order to do this. Yeah, that's right. You know, uh, we're, we're all, you know, putting it bluntly, we're all idiots. None of us really know everything about what the, even small subjects matters. And so it's, well, we're, we've all got to be patient with each other. I dare say, David, if we're going to talk about some of the things that you and I believe, we'll, we'll believe different things. Um, but Jesus is our foundation for both of us. So you know, this is this is the great foundation for us going forward. I think in in thinking about um, Romans and how to read Romans, um, as Douglas Campbell's book might not always model this in the best way. It's a quite aggressively argued book, but uh, ultimately the only way to engage with with um, his book, I think, is with a measure of generosity. Yeah, you're you're kind of the person in the midst of the fray that's saying, "Hold on, everyone. Okay, that's good for everybody to express themselves and good." you know, good for you. But let's also remember we are Christians. We're all affirming the centrality of Christ. We're trying to be the body of Christ together in some way. So why don't we see if we can, if we can, if we can do that and accomplish that. So I think that your voice is a needed one and a necessary one. I appreciate your ongoing scholarship. It was a real, I tell people the greatest honor that I have had in this journey so far has been to be invited to be on the OnScript podcast huh. because I I just think of the OnScript podcast. That's the place where PhDs talk about uh, ideas at the at the. It's like a scholarly conference and a podcast. It's the type of thing I would go to listen to, but not ever expect to be invited to be on. And so I tell people that that's that's been one of the greatest compliments that I've received, and that you read my book or that you thought I had something to contribute to this conversation was it, it really, really meant the world to me. So thank you very much for that. Oh, pleasure. Read and enjoyed your book. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for spending some time with us in the midst of your recouping and recovery. And I, I just say that this is the greatest COVID interview I've ever done. <laughs> and I hope that I will ever do. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. Thanks I think I'm, I'll, I'll leave that cough in just so people I'll edit out yeah. the rest of there yeah, are a lot of coughs do. that I'm going to edit out, but I'll just leave that one in to know that you really that you really struggled to work your way through this. And I appreciate it so much. Thanks, mate. Cheers. Pleasure All to right. be on. 
Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.